read in the Daily Bread this past week that when people sing together, uh, two things happen. Uh, one, it lowers stress, and I hope that worked for you. And uh, secondly, uh, as people sing together, apparently their heartbeats uh, beat at the same rate and at the same time. So that's kind of interesting and just uh, kind of a unifying effect that singing can be. Um, Terminology. Oh, by the way, I'm not the pastor of Whitehurst Baptist Church. Uh, I am uh, filling in for Pastor Jeremy, who's gone for a, a couple of weeks, and uh, so for two Sundays, uh, and so I'm on for this Sunday. My name's Tony Enns, and I'm a missionary with Northern Canada Evangelical Mission, and have been connected with this church for quite a few years. Uh, next week, uh, the speaker will be Chris Young, who's uh, at the back there, and uh, he'll be taking the next section from the book of Philippians. Now... I'll get back to the word terminology. Knowing the terminology of a certain group is important to understand what is going on with that group. When I was in Washington, D.C. back in April for a housing conference, at times me and the rest of the team from the Yukon were at a loss because they d- we didn't have a clue what they were talking about by certain keywords, phrases, or acronyms. The conference name was the BFZ-20K Homes Conference, and uh, which we later learned stands for Built for Zero, the U.S. initiative to try to reduce homelessness, and the 20,000 Homes is the Canadian initiative to try to do the same thing. The same thing at the counseling course that my wife and I uh, were in this past month. Uh, we were to listen to some CDs, and as I was listening to one, uh, they were talking about the V1 capacity and R2 statements in the BCI model. And I'm just kind of going, what are they talking about? Um, and uh, as we go uh, into God's word, terminology can be important there as well. And our passage this morning is Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11. And it's an amazing passage, but I just need to be honest with you we will not be able to give full justice to this passage in one message this morning. Uh, if there would have been longer time for this series, there's a chance that this message would have been broken into two parts, the first part being verses 1 to 4, and the second part, verses 5 to 11. It isn't as if there isn't a connection between the first and second uh, uh, section. Uh, they do belong together. Um, but it's just it's just so much in in this passage. But I'd like to read it to you, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And by the way, uh, if uh, anyone doesn't have a Bible and would like to have one, I believe they still do. They still have uh, Bibles that you can just uh, take uh, complimentary uh, of the church here. We'd like to have everyone leave here knowing that they have a Bible that they can turn to. So Philippians 2, verses 1 to 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's just pause for a word of prayer once again. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for uh, the inspiration of your scriptures and this beautiful passage that you inspired Paul to write to encourage the believers in Philippians. I pray that this passage might encourage us this morning, give us a deeper understanding of what you have done for us, a deeper understanding of who we are in Christ, and Lord, that this might impact our lives for your glory and the good of others in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Now, this series is called Ordinary People, Radical Joy. And the title of this message in particular is The Attitude That Leads to Radical Joy. Now, you may not have seen or heard that uh, word attitude in there, but in verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, and a number of passages or uh, versions say, have this attitude uh, among yourselves. The attitude that leads to radical joy. Though we don't have time to go through this whole section verse by verse, I do think we have time to look at some key words in this section. The terminology that Paul was using. I think if we understand at least five key words in this section, it will give us a good sense of this passage. These five words are theos, kurios, doulos, kinuo, and staros. And you might be thinking, sounds Greek to me. And, and you would be right, although my Greek is not very good. But let's start taking a look at these words. And the first word is theos, and it is translated twice in verse 6. And theos is the most common word in the New Testament that's used for God, the most common word by far. It's uh, in verse 6, but we'll start at verse 5 again. Have this mind or attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, theos, did not count equality with God, theos, a thing to be grasped. According to the Strong's Concordance found in Bible Hub, Theos is of unknown origin and means properly God, the creator and owner of all things. And then in kind of a side note, it says, long before the New Testament was written, Theos referred to the supreme being who owns and sustains all things. Now, some people get caught up with phrases like in the form of God or the very nature of God, which makes them wonder, well, is Jesus really God or not? 
I like personally the New Living Translation, which says simply, though he was God. And there is a lot of support for that idea of Jesus being God from John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, and Hebrews chapter 1. Those passages, verses in those chapters support this truth. So Jesus is the creator and owner of all things, the supreme being who owns and sustains all things. The next word is kurios, and it is translated Lord in verse 11. But again, we'll start in verse 10 because it's just, in my opinion, a much more cool place to start. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, kurios, to the glory of God the Father. And some of you who are my age or older might have uh, the song, He is Lord, going through your head. He is Lord, he is risen from the dead, and he is Lord. And every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, much of the material I'll be giving for this word and the next word we'll be looking at is based on a sermon I heard when I was down at a shepherd's uh, conference in California back in 2008. Uh, John MacArthur was speaking a message that touched upon these very words, curios, and the next word, doulos. And, and he was saying that there are two critical things to understand about the believer's identity here. One is Jesus is Lord, curios, the one who has the power, the one who is the owner, the one who has the absolute, absolute right to command. And it is synonymous with another word that is used in Jude, uh, well, there's only one chapter in, in Jude, Jude verse 4. And at the, toward the end of that verse, it says, it talks about ungodly persons who deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Our only master and Lord. You can only have one. No man can serve two masters, Jesus taught, and I'll be talking a little bit about that a little bit later. Jesus is our only master and Lord. Lord is curios. Master is from the Greek word despotes, from which we get the English word despot. Maybe not too common of a word these days, but a despot is someone who is overbearing, totally in charge, totally dominating. That's being despotic. That's exactly the word that is used. It means an absolute ruler, a sovereign ruler. He is our only despot, our only master. Paul Paul used, well, actually it was Jude back then uh, in the book of Jude. He uses very specific words, very powerful words, very narrow words in focus. And that is why when our Lord offers the invitation to follow him, he says this, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. We are no longer in charge. Our life is not defined by our own wants, our own will, our own desires, and our own ambitions, but by Jesus' will, his desires, and his purposes. What is our... Uh, what is the basic truth of Christianity? Jesus is Lord. So when I say I'm a Christian, I'm saying that Jesus is the sovereign ruler over my life. 
Whatever he wants, I submit to that, even though I have to admit I have a lot to work in fully submitting to the Lord at all times. That's the first great understanding of the Christian life. And if I were to ask you, what is the foundational reality that defines what it means to be a Christian, the fundamental reality that distinguishes the believer's relationship to Christ, and what is our great confession in three words, it would be, Jesus is Lord. In fact, if if you want to be saved, Romans 10 verse 9 says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus is curious. Jesus Jesus is Lord. The Greek always um, had a corresponding thought to that, and that corresponding thought is doulos. Curios is Lord and Master, and doulos is slave. Every Lord had one or more slaves. So our third word is doulos, and it means slave. And here we come to a bit of a problem in our English Bibles, because you won't see that word very often. If you go to the New Testament Greek, you will find the Greek word for slave approximately 150 times in all its different forms. But you will find it only translated slave in the English only a few of those 150 times. The New Testament translators only translate the Greek word for slave, slave, when referring to an actual physical slave, an actual person who is a slave, or uh, in connection with uh, a thought, uh, inanimate thought, like slaves of sin or slaves of righteousness. But if Jesus is Lord, then who are his slaves? Those who confess Jesus is Lord. Christians, if he is Lord, which is to say he is master, then I am his slave. There is no such thing as a master without a slave and a slave with no master. Yet this, unfortunately, is completely hidden in many of our English translations. But it's a very important concept. Perhaps the most clarifying word to describe the Christian in the New Testament. Again, the word is doulos. In the Greek, the word means slave, and never anything else but slave in the Greek mindset. It doesn't mean servant. It doesn't mean worker. It doesn't mean hired hand or helper. There are six or seven Greek words that mean servant in some form. Doulos never means servant. A servant is someone hired to do something. The slave is someone who is owned. And I want to repeat that because it's important. A servant is someone hired to to do something. The slave is someone who is owned. A big difference. And yet through the New Testament, the word slave is masked often by the word servant or some form of the word servant. A puzzling thing. Recently, there have been new translations, however. Uh, Only one of them that I'm aware of uh, translate the word doulos slave every time, and it's called the Holman Christian Standard Bible. When I read uh, longer passages of scripture at home as part of my reading, Bible reading time, I use the New Living Translation, and the New Living Translation translates doulos as slave most of the time. But why didn't the English translators translate doulos slave? To 
to answer that, we need to go back to the first English Bibles, back to the 16th century, back to people like Calvin and John Knox and others putting together the Geneva Bible. They made a decision not to translate the word doulos into slave. The reason? Too much stigma with the concept of being a slave. It's too humiliating, too belittling. They thought Christians would be offended in being called slaved. So they opted to cover the word by replacing it with servant or bond servant, and they largely eliminated the word slave, except in the few cases I mentioned earlier. They said it's just too negative. What were they afraid of? If they think that there was some stigma in the 16th century with the concept of a slave, how about in the first century when the writers of the New Testament used the word? There were as many as 12 million slaves in the Mediterranean world. And one, uh, approximately one out of every five people in the Roman Empire was a slave. And slavery, it could be a wide range of things, uh, as much of any type of human relationship today. There was places where slavery actually worked quite well, very well. And there were others when it was horrendous and abusive and demeaning, much like we understand the concept of slavery today. But nonetheless, the Holy Spirit inspired the word doulos. And it is... As a result, uh, when it's not translated slave, we're missing a paradigm in which to understand better our relationship with Christ. A couple of illustrations. I said earlier that Jesus said, no man can serve two what? Two masters. Well, you could if you were a servant. Uh, you could work for two people. Like today, you could have a day job and, and a night job. A lot of people work for more than one person, but you couldn't, in the Bible times, be a slave to two masters because you could only be owned by one. And actually, that verse has the term uh, or variant of doulos in it, and so it would be better translated that no man can be the slave of two masters. Jesus and the writers of the New Testament talk slave talk all the time. And this is how Christians refer to themselves in the early church. There's a story about a man named Ephenius who was imprisoned by the Romans for his commitment to Christ. And then he was brought into a kind of inquisition and they asked him to answer their questions and to recant his devotion to Christ and to swear allegiance to Caesar. Every question they asked got the same answer. I am a slave to Christ, he said, I am a slave to Christ, a slave of Christ. And for that, he was executed. As we think about terms used to describe Christians in the New Testament, we're called a variety of things. We're called children of God. We're called heirs and joint heirs with Christ. We're called members of the body of Christ. We are even designated things like branches or his sheep, the sheep of his pasture. And you don't want to miss those metaphors because each one of them gives us a facet of understanding better our relationship with Christ. But the dominating word in the New Testament to describe uh, the understanding of salvation for us is understanding the word slave. It is so easy 
to slide into a man-centered emphasis in the church and to talk about Jesus coming along as a kind of a buddy who loves you, even though he does love us, but who wants to satisfy all your desires and give you everything you want. But that isn't what the New Testament teaches. What the New Testament teaches is not that uh, we are Lord and he is our slave. It's that Jesus is Lord and we are his slaves. It's inherent in saying that Jesus is Lord, that you are a slave who understands that obedience is the necessary response to that. In John 15, verse 14, Jesus says, You are my friends if you do what I say or do what I command you. Doesn't that strike you as an odd thing to say? If I were to come up to you and say, I want to be your friend, so you need to do everything I say. That, that would be interesting. That could get an interesting response. Um, but the next uh, verse in that chapter says, No longer do I merely call you slaves. I'm kind of elaborating a little bit. I'm taking you beyond that. I have called you friends. Now, what's the difference? What's the difference between a slave who is a slave and just a slave and a slave who is now a friend? Well, it goes like this. A typical slave doesn't know what his master is doing. He is told to do things and he's never told a reason. He's not given a motivation, not given the big picture. A slave is simply told, do this, and the slave is expected to do that by his master. The Lord of the slave doesn't have to give him his agenda, his purpose, his strategy, or plan. But once a slave becomes his friend, it's a, a different situation. To a slave who is a friend, he says, all things that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you, I, t- I let you in on the family secrets. So we're slaves who have been given the privilege of being friends. It still means that he, Jesus is in charge. He commands and we obey. But he commands us with full disclosure of all the reasons, all the marvelous reasons for doing what he asks us to do. And he's given us those reasons in his book, the Bible. But some of us may be still struggling with this idea. I don't know if I want to be called a slave of Christ. A common thing to do when there's something we struggle with is to find a support group. We could call it slaves who struggle with being called slaves. Do we have a support group in the Bible? Are there prominent people who were not ashamed to be known as slaves of Jesus Christ? Well, we can find a number of people who are who call themselves curio I'm not curious doulos or slave in the Bible. Right at the beginning of Philippians chapter one, one verse one, Paul says, Paul and Timothy, douloi or slaves of Christ, or Christ Jesus. In second Peter one verse one, we read Simon Peter, a doulos or slave of and apostle of, the, of Jesus Christ. In James 1 verse 1, we read James, a doulos or slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jude 1, du, Jude, a doulos of Jesus Christ. So pretty good company so far. And then we have a very interesting conversation between the Apostle John and an angel in Revelation chapter 22, 
verses 8 and 9. There John writes, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he, the angel, said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow doulos, a fellow slave with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and of all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. So the apostle John is called a slave. The prophets are called slaves. And this angel of revelation calls himself a slave, a fellow slave. Pretty good support group, eh? But there's one more. One more who became the ultimate slave, and he's found right here in our text in Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 7, it says, Have this mind or attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a doulos, a slave being born in the likeness of man. So if we have trouble thinking it's beneath ourselves to be called a slave, I think we need to change our thinking because Jesus was a slave gladly. Here are some things Jesus said. I do what the Father tells me to do. I do what the Father shows me to do. I do what I see the Father doing. And then finally, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said to his father, not my will, but thine be done. He was a slave to his father. When you confess Jesus as Lord, you confess yourself to be a slave. A slave who is a friend and a son and an heir and a joint heir and a citizen of that eternal kingdom who is loved, having been captured by Jesus. A, capt- a captor who is a despot of love and a master of mercy. And one day he longs to gather us together and to say to each one of us, well done, good and faithful slave. First, Jesus is God and Lord. Second, Christians are slaves. We are douloi, that's the plural. It means we're owned. Owned twice, actually. First, because Jesus created us, and by default being the owner as the creator of us, and secondly, because the Lord Jesus bought us with his precious blood. Now, how did Jesus go from being theos, or God, and come down to be a slave or a doulos? That brings us to our fourth word, kanuo. And again, if there's someone who knows Greek well here, my apologies for butchering Greek here, kanuo. It's the basis or the root of the word kenosis. And there, in Bible college, there's talk about the kenosis theory, uh, the emptying of Christ, and what all that means. Um, and in verse 7 in the English Standard Version, it says, Jesus emptied himself. The NIV says, he made himself nothing. The New King James Version says, he made himself of no reputation. The debate sometimes goes like this. If God the Son emptied himself, did he remain God? Remain fully God? And the further away you get from this text, the more the debate might intensify. But I think looking at this 
text, we want to see what was Paul trying to get at here. The Greek section of my keyword study Bible comments, it is in all likelihood, it's just a vivid metaphor used to summarize the most sublime and inscrutable of mysteries, the incarnation, or God the Son coming to earth and being born a human being. In this passage, Kanuo denotes Jesus' act of self-abnegation. I had to look that up. Okay. Self-abnegation or self-denial. When he descended to earth to assume a human nature and to become part of humankind. It stands in parallel to the statement later in this passage, he humbled himself. Together, these two acts epitomize the humiliation of Christ. Some of you may have heard or used the saying, I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. And perhaps we've carried that train of thought about certain people. I wouldn't touch him or I wouldn't touch her with a 10-foot pole. I find it amusing to read Genesis chapter 3 and read about Adam and Eve uh, bringing sin into themselves and into the world and think of a, a holy God looking at that. And imagine him maybe thinking, I wouldn't touch earth with a 10 galaxy pole. But God did touch the earth. He sent his only begotten son to become part of the humanity that rebelled against him. And not only did Jesus become human, but he came to suffer the worst death devised at the time. And which brings us to the final word, staros, the cross. How far did he come down? In the likeness of man, humbled all the way down, in verse 8, to become obedient to the point of death. The worst death at the time, even death on a cross. Jesus' purpose in taking the very nature of a slave and coming in human likeness was to die for the sins of all mankind and thereby satisfy God's righteous anger against man's sin. The fact that he came in human form did not cause him to become any less God. It simply allowed him to carry out his Father's will. Jesus bore our sins on the cross, but he bought but he bore much more than that. In Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, we read, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. In my experience, the evangelical church Churches have focused more on verse 5, more on Jesus dealing with our sins, our transgressions, and our iniquities, the, the th- things that are fully taken care of the moment we put our trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. Our sins are taken away. But we tend not to talk as much about what Jesus, the fully human man, went through to identify with us, things that we go through as we walk our lives On earth, being despised, rejected, sorrows, grief, being unvalued or undervalued, stricken, smitten, afflicted. Perhaps you have experienced many or all of these things in, in your lifetime. Perhaps you've experienced some of these things this past week. 
As one old hymn goes, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. And while it's so important to carry our hurts and our sorrows and our griefs to, to, to God, to Jesus in prayer, I also want to stress it's important to have at least one person here on earth that we can go to about those, these things. Can we fill in the blank what a friend we have in Walter or Wilma? We ought to be able to go to at least one other believer with all the griefs and sorrows and hurts we experience in life. And I encourage you to search out one person like that, a person you can trust with those deep things of your heart. We are often most hurt in relationships, but we can also experience the most healing in relationships, a relationship with Christ, but are in relationship with other people. As an old uh, course, the family of God says, when one has a heartache, we all shed a tear. So if you have a heartache this morning, I and the elders are willing to listen to you this morning and and uh, pray with you if you would be okay with that. So what is the attitude that leads to radical joy? An attitude that includes being humble, that includes self-denial, that includes self-sacrifice for the higher good of others. It's an attitude that empties itself of status, of achievement, of race, culture, and education, anything that we might consider that could give us an advantage over others, that would make us somehow superior over others. Paul does this in this very next chapter, chapter 3. He lists all his fleshly status and accomplishments and considers them loss, considers them rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing who? Jesus Christ, his Lord, and to please him as his faithful slave, in bringing the good news to others. And it is this attitude that will enable us to live out some of those earlier verses in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, which tells us to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, with a humble attitude, count others more significant or esteem others more highly than ourselves. And to look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word, and we thank you for our English Bible, but also for the the Greek words behind it. And Lord, we thank you that you are God, and your Son, Jesus Christ, is Lord. We confess Jesus is Lord this morning, and we are honored to take upon ourselves being a slave that means being a slave of our wonderful Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we, we want to honor that name today and this week and glorify you, our Heavenly Father, in Jesus Christ's name.